Happy New Year. Uh, welcome to Lunch Money, uh, your online and social media home for workouts, special situations and capital raising professionals. Uh, we made it to 2021. Who would have thought it? Um, my name's Nick Samios. I'm the director here at Hermes Capital and I am your Lunch Money host. Um, we've got a, a great lineup, a great show to kick off the new year for you uh, today. We, uh, you, you, what you've done is you've entered the, uh, the Lunch Money uh, Bar and Cafe. Um, and, uh, and and so today we have celebrity chef uh, Sule Anortovic. Um, we have uh, our special guest maitre d is Aaron McDonald from uh, Pragma Legal in Perth. Um, and we're going to be covering some pretty interesting topics. Um, I've got a bit of a, a GameStop story in there. We're going to talk a little bit about... Um, uh, people acting vengefully and potentially against their financial interests. Uh, we're going to talk about the insolvency moratoriums coming to an end and, and how that's played out. Um, we're looking at a story about uh, Verge and shedding, uh, shedding some jobs and uh, how that plays out across the corporate sector. And we're also going to talk about it was transfer season in the insolvency and restructuring uh, industry over the last couple of months. And there's been some uh, marquee player transfers. I'm going to talk a little bit about that. Before we go on, uh, I would like to uh, ask you, please, to uh, share, uh, like, or subscribe. If you're watching us on YouTube or wherever you're watching us, um, and give us a share, give us a like, give us a thumbs up, um, and uh, and help spread spread the good word. Um, I'd also like to remind you that uh, for our live uh, viewers and live listeners, uh, if you ask a good question or make a, an interesting comment, uh, you can uh, win this, the exclusive uh, unique lunch money mug. Uh, we send that out to you. Um, okay, let's uh, let's start off with our first segment, recipe of the week. And recipe of the week uh, is going to be brought to you today by our celebrity chef Sulean Udovic. G'day, Sule. Hello, good Nick. How are you? Listen, I'm a bit worried. You're not meeting the regulations. You don't have the chef's hat there, but. Uh, <laughs> You only, you only informed me about 10 minutes ago I was a chef, so... That's, that's okay. That's okay. Listen, uh, what, what have you been up to the past week? Well, um, uh, possibly one of those uh, marquee transfers you were talking about. Maybe not, but uh, recently moved uh, firms to Hall Chadwick. So I've been uh -huh. quite busy just integrating, doing the move. And, uh, and of course, my luck, uh, they've decided um, the powers of B to sort of bring in some... Some major reforms in our area, law reforms. So I've been trying to upskill on that and try and understand if there's actually any benefit to what the powers of be have done. But uh, we'll see. Proofs in the pudding. And have they given you a nice uh, uh, window there with a view uh, view over the uh, over the over Sydney Harbour, or do you have to earn your way there? Are you in the in the back in the storage cupboard, or I've got a reasonable glimpse at uh, city water views, but I might need a mirror to sort of uh, reach out at 90 degrees and stare around the corner. Fantastic. Okay. Now, as the celebrity chef, you are sharing the recipe of the week, and your recipe is the, the recipe for what to do when your largest customer becomes insolvent. We were talking, and I know you were talking about this last year, Sule, you were saying that one of your concerns was a bit of the contagion risk because of these insolvency moratoriums, um, that people were trading in good faith with, with you know, zombie companies, this is what the, the media is calling them, that, that would otherwise be insolvent. 
but because of the support, because of the moratoriums and the job keeper, they are able to keep trading. But, you know, look, inevitably there are going to be situations where someone's largest customer suddenly declares themselves uh, insolvent. And we've already seen Grollo, we've seen Dildam, we've seen uh, one or two others over the, over the summer break. So let's, let's go through your recipe. Um, your, first, uh, your first couple of points are uh, to call the customers, directors, management to find out what's going on. Uh, check your outstanding purchase orders, maybe stop work if required, and consider any leverage you might have over the administrator's uh, pricing adjustments, that sort of thing. So do you want to talk through those first? Uh, the first three points? Yeah. Yeah, I, th I think it's just important. I mean, I mean th these things don't always happen with a lot of notice and they happen quite abruptly. And if you're a business owner and are impacted by this, you know, without... Um, blasphemy and expletives that sort of come to mind in, in the first instance. I think it's just um, in a situation where you're behind the ball and don't know really what's going on, you've got to pick up the phone. It's not an email letter writing exercise in the first day. You've got to pick up the phone and find out what the intention is, what the directors plan to do, and then possibly fact check that with the administrators or IPs and find out if that aligns. Um, and you, you then sort of move into, you know, where's my exposure here? Um, yeah. What is that? Um, how, you know, how much am I owed? Uh, what, you know, what am I paying for um, in terms of related suppliers to deliver work? It's possibly a stop work scenario straight away until you find out a bit about the strategy. Try and get some authorization from the insolvency practitioners so you actually get paid. You don't want to add to the burden. Um, and those, in, in terms of leverage, um, you, you find yourself in situations. Um, as a result of an administration where you, you uh, should be a critical creditor in, in, in a particular matter um, and you may be entitled to uh, seek extra payment in the form of a ransom payment or increase your pricing or do all sorts of things to try and catch up on your exposure. Your next point here is to consider the impact of customer failure on your own solvency position. Now, I guess the obvious thing there is, you know, you, all of a sudden you get, you've got a hole in your cash flow because someone may or may not be paying you 100 cents in the dollar. Very unlikely you'll get 100 cents. Um, but the other thing, of course, is that if someone represents, you know, 40% of your revenue, that's, you know, it's not only the loss, but it's also the loss of income going forward as well. Have you got any comments on that, that point? Yeah, I think you're, you're, you're obviously pretty in tune with who your major customers are when someone important um, goes into insolvency. Uh, there could be ramifications, possibly not day one, um, as cash flow usually works. There's a bit of a time delay when you feel the pain, but you should be aware um, of the significance of your customer and if there's likely to be an impact with your own uh, financial position and cash flows, you probably need to get some advice and a bit of modelling on how you're going to get through it. Your next points are check unpaid invoices, statements and debts, check if uh, you hold any bonds or retentions or bank guarantees or, for that matter, director's guarantees, um, and check if uh, any contracts or agreements are, are suddenly in default. I know that there's, uh, obviously, with the um, safe harbour, there came in the ipso facto clauses and what have you. Um, so that's you're sort of getting onto the technical side there of being able to prove up your debt, I suppose. Yes, I mean, your, your primary debt in this situation is owed by the company, um, but it's quite possible and normal that you hold third party or, or related party security, and that security could be in the form of, uh, you know, retention of title, stock equipment, uh, guarantees, uh, retentions in the building game, bonds, 
uh, all sorts of things uh, could come into play. So it's really a, a situation of, you know, once you've found out what's going on, what the strategy is, what the likely prognosis is, is what do I have in my back pocket to protect any shortfalls that I might sustain down the track? Now, you've also got check if any of your stock or property is uh, subject to PPSR. So I guess this is particularly if you're, for example, hiring out equipment or providing equipment. Uh, you don't want to suddenly find out that you've, uh, you've donated that to, to, the, to the unsecured creditors. Yeah, it's, it's just a really important bit. Um, in particular, I mean, if you've got uh, significant machinery and gear, it, it doesn't sort of morph as quickly as smaller consumable items. So if you've supplied something that can be incorporated into other goods or part of a manufacturing process, um, you really got to jump onto this straight away um, to try and identify um, what property at the various company locations is still yours. You know, two objectives there, uh, get paid by the administrator for using them uh, or, to, or, or to recover it and minimise your losses elsewhere. So. I'll just come to this next, the last one you've got here or the second last one. You've got this thing where uh, voidable preferences um, where, you know, you, you not only have your customers gone bust. So let's let's make this a tangible one. Let's imagine that uh, you're a supplier to Virgin, for argument's sake. And uh, all of a sudden, you know, let's, you, you know, you, you maybe have had a couple of hundred thousand dollars that um, uh, in your accounts receivable, and now Virgin's not going to be able to pay that. Um, but to make things worse, uh, you had a deal with the um, Virgin's account payable department uh, on some other debt. And they they said, listen, we're having some cash flow issues, and we you know we're going to uh, pay you off instead of paying you as the invoice is full due, and that's a preference situation as well. Yes, it is. Uh, it, it, it's cer- it's certainly not a day one task because you you're pretty busy doing everything else we talked about. Mm. But creditors should be aware of the long term potential that there could be a sting in the tail, um, and you know that, acknowledging that there might be preference issues. There might be a fair bit on, uh, you know, the, de- the demand correspondence file. Um, and if there's a situation where you, you have had some old debt paid down in that period and you're an unsecured creditor with no security, um, it's something to bear in mind. It should feed into your process about how you vote at meetings, um, whether, for example, you approve a deed of arrangement that, you know, uh, avoids the necessity of clawing back preferences or indeed just being prepared for the ultimate fight um, maybe getting some advice and um, having an informed position of what you do when the likely demand comes in liquidation. So we're just going to put you in the waiting room with this uh, um, celebrity chef, uh, Sule Anordovic. Thank you very much for your recipe today. Uh, and we're going to introduce our uh, our guest maitre d', uh, Aaron McDonald from Pragma Legal uh, in Perth. How are you going, Aaron? Good, Nick. How are you? Not too bad. What's been keeping you on your toes this week? Um, I've just been getting back into the swing of things. I sort of take the view that Nick sort of Australia returns to business after Australia Day. Um, And um, I've been teaching a course at at the UWA Law School to final year law students. Um, I've been assisting some liquidators in relation to um, a company over which they've been appointed receiver, um, trying to restructure that company. Um, And just, yeah, just a few things, just trying to get back into the swing of things. Fantastic. What are you teaching at uh, the law school? Oh, it's about tech and law firm management. Um, it's a unit that I, I put together, crafted myself and sold to the law school and they agreed to um, let me teach it. So it's the first time ever it's been taught and I've been doing it over the weekends on top of um, full-time work. It's been, it's been pretty full on. 
Is it fair to say, you know, sort of uh, process re-engineering is a little bit of one of your things, isn't it? I mean, the way you run your practice there, you, you sort of re-engineered the way, the way things are done. Is that a fair comment? We haven't talked about this before. Well, it's a very highly complimentary comment. Um, uh, we certainly try. I mean, professional service firms, law firms, you've got to try and differentiate yourself. If you don't do that, then um, you've got to just um, be seen by the consumer or the clients as just the same as everybody else. One of the things we've done quite differently in terms of changing things up is in relation to dispute resolution and litigation, just trying to go to the solution as quickly as possible as the crow flies, which is a lot easier said than done, but we always try and develop strategies which do that, and that's the reputation that we've sort of built. Now, listen, um, whenever I speak to people in WA, they tell me the economy's flying over there. I mean, certain parts of the mining sector are going great. So how mm. did you only come in sixth you know, the other day as far as uh, economies in Australia go? What's going on there? Do you trust the numbers? I don't. Oh, I certainly think that it's humming over here. Um, mm. I didn't see those figures in relation to it coming sixth, but it's the, the Western Australian state government has delivered a surplus um, you speak to anybody in mining, they can't get a workforce. You've got to wait till August if you want to buy a jet ski or a caravan. Um, you know, it's, it's really busy over here. And there's been a lot of criticism, obviously, from over in the east, Nick, about not being able to come over. But, um, you know, the way the West, the West Australians are very parochial and they sort of see it as we're underwriting the economy. You know, these iron ore exports with iron ore at $175 a tonne. It's going nuts. Yeah, you say that, but, uh, you know, I, I used to get over there once or twice a month and uh, surely you're missing out on my Uber fees, lunch bills, coffees and, and beer tabs and all that sort of stuff, I'm sure. Yeah, perhaps. perhaps. But also yeah. we, don't have, we don't have any of us leaving to go to Bali or Europe. I mean, January is usually trying to get a hold of a barrister in January. They're usually skiing in France, but at the moment they're on their boats at Rotterdam. Yeah, that's really tough for all those lawyers who haven't been able to go to Aspen this year. Listen, we're going to bring back Sule. Yep. Um, and we're going to just ask you, we're going to stay focused on you, though, Aaron. Let's look yep. at some of Sule's points here. Um, I'm interested, firstly, have you got any, uh, well, let me let me step you through a couple of points I thought you might be interested in, yep. and then you tell me if you've got any more. He says this, consider if you have leverage over the VA. And yep. I imagine this would be, this this idea of ransom creditors, um, is this something that you, um, that you found yourself uh, advocating oh. for a client? Yeah, I guess it's theoretically possible. Sule raises a good point. I often think in those situations, it's good to get the lawyer and the IP in the room at the same time What I, for what I call like the insolvency 101 discussion. And if that's something that you can do, then obviously, as Sule said, to leverage your position, you should definitely consider it. But obviously, the VA is going to make a decision. It um, probably won't see you as having a monopoly over that company and might be able to find a different supplier. And how does how do things change if you are a customer? You know, you've as I say, the scenario is that your largest customer's gone bust. Yeah. Um, how how's the di scenario different? Where you know, and, and let's say the clients come to you for advice. You're the client's lawyer, and they've come in and said, "Listen, Aaron, my biggest customer's gone bust," and and you find you know, what's the difference between them having directors' guarantees and not having directors' guarantees? Oh, I think. Well, I'm glad you raised directors' guarantees because I, I think that's something that's really important. And it actually reminds me of a story that of, of a matter I was involved in when it went into VA. I think um, Sulay said a minute ago that it's obvious these things often happen quite suddenly, and you don't really really realise that it's happened. Um, I would say to that, that sometimes you do get forewarning, in, particularly in relation to payment plans, in relation to accounts. And that's when I think it's really important that a pinch of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And when, when you've got 
Um, you dotted your I's and you crossed your T's in terms of director's guarantees, if you if you if they're willing to give them. Not too many people want to give them these days. Or a PPSR registration that's properly perfected. Because as Lula would know, when you get appointed to these um, administrations, um, they, the first thing they're going to do is look at the validity of the PPSR registrations. It reminds me of a matter that I was involved in. Was acting for a trucking company, not not their largest supplier, but one one of their customers. One of their customers went into VA, and they had a director's guarantee. They were owed, um, I think they were owed about hundred thousand dollars. But obviously, the one thing we did there to get the client a really good result is the day that the moratorium ended on being able to pursue the director, we filed a writ in the district court here and managed to get a mediated outcome where the client took away two thirds of what they were owed. Three months, uh, three months within three months of commencing the proceeding. Yeah, well, that's uh, that is good. What else, what else sort of stood out at you from uh, from Sule's recipe there? I think um, the point in relation to voidable preferences, I think, is yeah, it's not a day one issue, but certainly if the company goes into liquidation, you're going to have to address it, and that's something that's worthwhile speaking to a lawyer about. Um, but otherwise, I think Sule's tips are fantastic, and I'll certainly be keeping a copy of them next to my desk. If anybody, any of our viewers or listeners uh, wants uh, a copy of that tip sheet, get in touch with us, and uh, with Sule's blessing, uh, we will send it out to you. I'm just hoping Aaron doesn't use all of them against me next time I'm appointed, in particular. Yeah. <laughs> Sule, hopefully you'll be in the room, um, you know, helping me advise the, uh, the supplier. So, yeah. Oh, Fair enough. Hold- <laughs> Okay, well, now we're coming up to our next segment, takeaways. There you are. As I said, you're in the Lunch Money Bar and Cafe, and uh, we do have uh, a takeaway. But our takeaways is our takeaways on the news. Now, we're going to start off our first uh, news article is uh, this one about uh, GameStop. GameStop shares more than double as angry mob targets short sellers. You know, what, what was happening here was that People were, were bidding up the price of these shares uh, just purely, uh, A, for amusement, I think, but also as a bit of revenge. Uh, you know, things in America are, are obviously pretty pretty hot. Um, you know, they're just finally, I think, receiving some of this relief money. I think people are, are saying, well, here's what we're going to do with your relief money. We're going to stick it to Wall Street. Um, and actually, there's a couple of funny little memes um, that, that, that were doing the rounds on Twitter uh, there's this one. It's not about the money. It's about sending a message. And there's the joke of setting fire to a pile of cash. And then we've got these guys here, some <laughs> me and the boys on watch for roving hedge fund managers. And uh, for our listeners, there's some guys with some pretty nasty-looking rifles standing on top of a GameStop uh, store. GameStop's like EB Games. Um, but what it made me think of was uh, situations where um, either creditors in an insolvency or restructuring scenario, or it might be business partners where um, people make decisions other than decisions that are in their best financial interests, uh, just for the sake of either being vengeful or for some other motives. Um, so, have you ever come across that in your travels? Well, it, it happens quite often in contested appointments where there's shareholder disputes, um, where you often find one camp is vehemently opposed to any sort of proposal that's made by any camp that's trying to drive the business forward. But you also get it in in, in scenarios where, um, and I'm not sure it's vengeful or just someone particularly looking after their own interests without any regard to the, the, the whole situation. For example, it's not uncommon terminated employees, um, even if they're afforded protection under a deed of arrangement, would vote for liquidation 
um, to have some certainty that you know the government will pay their entitlements, even though there might be adequate security or that they'll get paid out of a deed. You also have situations where you have statutory creditors who sometimes um, vote against high return proposals um, because of past compliance history. Um, but similarly, sometimes you have statutory creditors voting for lower return arrangements where compliance is, um, I suppose, neutral or okay. Um, so it's hard to identify what drives people sometimes, but uh, voting at meeting is certainly interesting. Okay, what about yourself, Aaron? Have you seen, uh, have you had to sort of talk someone down from doing something against uh, their best financial interests? Yeah, I'll just talk and think of what Sule said about shareholder disputes. I'm involved in one at the moment where each two shareholders, two brothers in relation to a company that's gone into a receivership are both making proposals in relation to the purchase of the business and neither will support the other even though they're getting paid out in each scenario. But also I think at um, creditors' meetings when there's a docker put up and um, creditors want to see the directors really suffer and um, and there might be talk of liquidation and looking into public examinations of the directors and insolvent trading claims. Um, Sometimes they'll make a decision which isn't in their financial interest, even when the docker um, would um, be recommended and, and return a greater um, number of cents in the dollar. Yeah, I must say, uh, you know, I have seen scenarios where, where creditors, rather than vote for cents in the dollar, they know that voting for a liquidation is going to get them a worse outcome. Yeah. Uh, but they say, listen, I want these guys to suffer and I'm willing to... You know, I'm willing to I'm willing to bear an increased loss uh, as a result of that. And I guess, Sule, for some restructuring, sometimes if you're trying to get a, a deed of company arrangement up to sort of save the business, that can become a problem. It's difficult because, you know, fundamentally our role is to make a recommendation that's in the interest of all creditors uh, without, um, you know, particular regard to one class or anything like that. Um, but when people cast their votes, they're purely focused usually on their, their, their objectives. And sometimes yeah. those objectives are, you know, stuff it, um, this business has caused me some pain and needs to be rubbed out. Uh, let's move on to our next uh, our next headline. New Look Virgin to clear out 350 at Brisbane HQ. And I saw this uh, article in The Australian. And then uh, later that day, I saw a tweet uh, from a chap that I follow on Twitter, Asher Spira. He's a, a budding uh, Twitter economist and, uh, and financial markets commentator. He's made a comment here that uh, that really, if there, if there is a V-shaped recovery, uh, it, it doesn't seem to be applying necessarily to professional jobs. Um, and I'm wondering, uh, I might start with yourself, Aaron, what you think about that. I mean, you've been talking about the way things are going in WA and in the mining sector, have you? But the you know, do you think that some uh, industries, you know, with lockdowns and what have you, uh, are being being restructured in a way where where there are jobs lost? And I also wonder if there's opportunities there as well for for contractors and what have you. Yeah, I think I think that in in relation to professional services, I agree with the graphic that you had up on the screen a moment ago. That professional services, I mean, particularly law and accounting, um, I think as as a whole, as a generalist sweeping statement. They've been busy during COVID and it's only going to get busier. And it's been one of those insulated industries during COVID because so many people can work from home. We're not making widgets or selling widgets. So I'm pointing out the obvious. I think retail is going to be really hurting and, and irrespective of what comes out of 
restructuring, there's going to be jobs lost. I went to go buy myself a new pair of shoes at David Jones the other night, um, Friday night, late night shopping here in, in Perth, which I assume you have in the other capital cities. And it was just so desolate and nobody around. And not only that, but I was so surprised that so many of the shops in the CBD weren't even open on Friday. Um, so I think that it's just unavoidable that um, I see that um, even here, the, the big the big companies like Maya, they're downgrading the amount of square meterage that they've got in their shops. So I think that, um, that yeah, the rise of Amazon and, and those sorts of things is going to make it very difficult for those businesses to thrive in the long term. And what uh, what do you think, Sulay? Where is this avalanche um, of failure and where is this avalanche of debt in Australia? I think in April, May last year, I certainly had the view that there was a fair bit of pain um, in the Australian economy, but, you know, good on the lawmakers. Um, with the benefit of hindsight, they've, they've been able to stave off um, um, issues. I don't think anyone in March thought uh, property prices um, in, in, in certain pockets, um, including regional areas, would go up as it had. So almost everything you thought might have happened hasn't happened. Um, but what we'll, 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 we'll think specifically, though, about, about I guess, the larger businesses, because um, and, and, we'll come to your point there in a minute with our, next, with our next story, but as it relates to, you know, for example, this Virgin story, you can imagine they're cutting 350 out of their headquarters. Now, I know Virgin is, on one hand, a special case. They've been through a restructuring that we all know about, but I don't think that this sort of thing's going to be unique to Virgin. Do, do, do you? Well, but what an absolute nightmare of a business exiting administration with a, with a COVID overlay. Um, one of the most tri difficult things for any business coming out of administration and going, you know, either being part of a, a sale of a business as a going concern or a restructure is trying to sort of manage the cash flow interruptions the COD demands, the gripes of creditors, the gripes of staff, you then overlay a situation where you don't know um, in, the, in the last few months it's, it's sort of, um, you know, been handed over by um, the restructuring team, uh, how many flights they can put up in the air, where they can fly um, with border lockdowns and restrictions. Um, it, I can only imagine the difficulty in trying to get a, a stable business plan going forward. So I'm not surprised their headcount losses. Um, I think anyone who uh, funds a restructure of a business from insolvency um, has to keep their cash flow in mind. Otherwise, um, Mark II is around the corner and it's just a really difficult time for the aviation industry. And now, now that's that's sort of the dark view, but, but on the other hand, I wonder if there's an opportunity there um, for small business because, you know, when, when large companies, you know, uh, sort of want to manipulate their fixed costs down and that means, uh, you know, retrenchments and that sort of stuff, it does mean that, that, that there are opportunities for smaller firms to offer, you know, whether it's labour hire or contracting services. I, I just wonder if, you know, for the SME sector, um, pain at the big end of town might create opportunities for, for some of the smaller people. I agree with it. I agree with what Sule said and what you said, Nick. Just going back to the airline industry, I noticed that Rex has started to put on domestic flights. I mean, that might be an example of a smaller business in the aviation industry that's actually capitalising from these sort of staff cuts. Um, but I think your point about labour hire is very good because um, there's a, a lot of profit, particularly in the West, there's a lot of profitable labour hire companies. Um, and whilst we really haven't seen many staff cuts over here, um, yeah, if there's going to be a surplus of 
the workforce, then they're obviously going to be able to take advantage. I think there's opportunities there. Um, maybe because what I do, I'm a bit cynical. Um, big business will control its costs. Um, we'll look at outsourcing situations, contracting situations, um, as opposed to um, you know full time responsibility for for, for various deliverables. I, I think you know, I, I sort of not envious of their position and some of the decisions they have to make. But yes, it could be an opportunity for tech to um, dehumanise some of the functions, and it could be a situation where some of the full time resources aren't needed going into the future, either because of tech or because they want to be able to control. Um, Costs as and when they're needed. Um, we'll just throw to our next uh, our next headline. Uh, now this is an interesting one. So it's payback time. Home business loans stress fade. So um, there is no insolvency cliff. Uh, everything's uh, everything's apples. Um, you know, small businesses and uh, and, and uh, home loan borrowers are all paying back their debt. Now we had this thing last year where the, the government brought in this new um, small business restructuring package. And I actually quite like it. I'll be interested to see how it plays out. But they, they also had the insolvency moratorium, uh, well, the, 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 the insolvent trading moratorium, which ended on the 31st of December. Now, they brought in a thing where small businesses under certain criteria could extend that insolvent trading moratorium by three months. And from what I read, the reason they were doing that was because insolvency practitioners were going to be so busy, they just would not be able to cope with all the businesses that were that were needing uh, insolvency advice, either restructuring or liquidations. Now, when I look at the insolvency stats, and maybe I'm looking in the wrong place, that the insolvency stats are 40 to 50% for January, less than what they were January last year. Sule? Uh, I think it's no secret, um, uh, liquidators and restructuring people are rather idle. I don't think it's been a busy period of time. And as I said, the, the relief and moratoriums have worked and well done to the lawmakers. Um, as I said, you know, the confidence that there will be some form of in insolvency cliff is dissipating at a quick rate of knots. I, I, whether these reforms um, get a lot of take up into the future, I'm not sure. But I think liquidators like myself and uh, restructuring lawyers are still trying to come to grips with how everything operates. Um, I personally have um, a concern that simplified liquidations will be something that's taken up with any um, uh, great occurrence. I just think um, in companies enter voluntary liquidation, well, certainly the shareholders and directors want them to be simple. But I just don't think in a lot of those cases there's enough value in them to consider altering that course. I think I've got bigger hopes for the small business restructuring plans. I think there's a place there. Um, but last I looked, I think only five or six companies um, in Australia have put their hands up for this sort of uh, insolvent trading relief to March. So I suspect um, people are, don't understand it um, at a large level, are aware that safe harbour is available anyway, um, and they'll continue to tap into whatever stimulus um, support is given by the government um, and will um, make appointments possibly April going forward, is my view. You know, the, the JobKeeper is tapering off. I mean, solvency moratoriums have uh, come to an end. I mean, where where are all the appointments? I mean, is it because of the stimulus? Has everybody just been at the beach? I, I, I'm probably a little bit less pessimistic than Sule. I think it's going to get quite busy, um, yes, March, April. I've seen a study which sort of says that there's 5,300 companies that wouldn't have gone into some form of external administration due to the stimulus. 
and it's expected that those companies will still go into some form of external administration, but it'll it'll continue over a three-year period, commencing around March, March or April. I think there is a bit of that that beach mentality, Nick, that um, people are sort of just still getting back into the swing of things and they're not going to go appointing um, an insolvency practitioner on in January. But I do think even I've looked at the statistics myself and I see that it's certainly busier than it was in 2020, but it, the inquiries are still t are trickling through. But I, and I don't think it's going to be a tsunami, but I certainly think that we're going to see an uptick um, in the second quarter of this year. Yeah, we, we've certainly seen we've certainly seen an uptick in inquiry the, the last little while. I wouldn't say it's it's a lot, but it's certainly it's certainly more of a pulse than what we've seen uh, in in more recent months. Um, what what the other thing though is it's not just the insolvency appointments. I mean, I've also been looking at the um, at the wind up notices, mm -hmm. and you know those are way down as well. Now I, I thought that there was you know there were just piles of people waiting for the uh, statutory demands to. To fall back into that 21-day category again. Have I misunderstood that or, or just nobody's issuing these things? Well, I think the major, the, the major issue, Nick, is um, there was a suspicion early on in the piece that a whole lot of private debt uh, was waiting for the statutory demand periods to be relaxed, as in people didn't want to wait um, six months to issue a stat demand and seek a wind-up order. They would rather wait until it got reduced back to normality of, you know, 21 days um, and issue it then. But I, I you know, the, the, I have some personal concerns about um, exactly um, how much loss and damage has been sustained in Australia. I mean, a lot of things have gone right for a lot of people. Um, my, my personal view is in terms of insolvencies, what will drive that? And the main, main driver will be a political stance on collection of debt largely driven by the ATO. I yeah. do not think in the short term the banks will decide how many insolvency appointments happen materially, nor nor am I that convinced statutory debt, I'm oh, sorry, trade creditor debt is the, the biggest driver as well. I'll probably rank that higher than the banks, mind you. I think it's a political stance and the ATO sending out um, the blue letterhead chasing arrears that are now some 12 months old, and that will be the driver of work. See, I noticed uh, a, a LinkedIn news feed from our friends over at Tax Assure, and they made the comment that um, the ATO is definitely chasing pre-COVID debt. So if you think you're going to get away with that, that, that that's not necessarily the case. Uh, let's move on to our next story, and this is, a, this is an interesting one. Uh, advisory firm poaches PwC partner. And I'm wondering, you know, we saw uh, Vaughan Strawbridge of uh, Deloitte fame has gone to uh, to FTI. Um, and uh, we've, we've also seen uh, another marquee player transfer uh, being Sule uh, turning up at Hall Chadwick. So what, what, can we read something into these? Or, uh, you know, what are these large uh, firms... Uh, seeing something uh, in the future, or, or what's what's going on? Yeah, you know, I, I think I think there's some sort of confidence um, by the sector that work will start improving in March, April, and continue to improve. Um, every sort of period of downturn in my career, um, there's always been a lag effect in terms of insolvency. You sort of have the event, for example, the GFC, but your your busy time didn't come immediately or during the GFC. It came as a lag of that event, and it's possibly some. Um, relativity with what's going on with the, with the pandemic. So I think there's a certainly a situation of um, certain firms gearing up, getting the right people to be able to handle the demand when it arrives. But also I think um, there could be a situation that 
Um, the, 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 some, some of the some some partners in firms have had to uh, potentially um, absorb, you know, working reductions or or profit salary reductions uh, when their firms are involved in multidisciplinary areas. Whereas um, in some situations, some partners are going really well. So there's you know, the, the usual adage in professional services firm, the things that cause a lot of grief sometimes is a disparity in performance and and working time. So what's fueling these um, key marquee things? It's possibly um, competitors gearing up for the expected influx in work and plus possibly various people thinking they can do better in another pattern. Now, now, Aaron, it's also also been in the uh, in the legal profession as well. You know, you see almost these lift out type situations where whole teams have been uh, transferring. I mean, what what do you think? Are they? Is it just sort of par for the course, or do you, as Sule says, do you think it's people getting ready for whenever it is, whether it's April or June, uh, just getting ready for for the storm? I think it's a bit of both. Certainly, it's part of the course. I mean, pre-COVID, you'd see partners and teams go up and leave to other law firms. Um, I think in any professional services firm, your biggest asset is the people, um, and you've got to have the right people on the right seats doing the right job, and that's what attracts the right clients and makes the um, enterprise profitable. Um, I see that in that article, it refers to the transfer of a forensic accountant partner I think that that's one area that's going to actually get quite busy. I know that my firm, we don't we don't engage forensic accountants terribly often, but just in the last few months, we've had the need to engage engage them twice. And obviously, there's in our in our game at least, they're seen as a bit of a litigation support vehicle. And so, um, yeah, I think that's interesting in itself. Um, so m- maybe they have identified that as a growth area. Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, um, one of my uh, colleagues, one of my bosses from many years ago used to say that people are as, uh, people are as honest as they are profitable. And uh, I, I actually think that uh, there's, there's probably been a lot of fraud, you know, corporate fraud in the place. And uh, yeah. so that probably would uh, sort of lend itself to forensic accountants um, as, as well. I, I think just in the first few months of the pandemic, it was the really big accounting and really big um, legal firms that, Stole all the headlines in the space. You know, 25 percent pay cuts, twenty uh, percent yeah. work time reductions. Um, ultimately, people make decisions um, for themselves and their families, and decide to make moves as well. Um, that, in addition to the competitive um, feelings people have about the future. So, I think the other thing, Sule, is that uh, you uh, have probably got another forty years and another, you know, five or six business cycles to go through because every time there's a downturn. Uh, guys that you'd thought had retired 10 years ago, uh, they're back. They're like Mick Jagger, you know, sort of uh, strutting their stuff across the stage. And we've seen a little bit about a bit of that as well. Yeah. Well, we're all hanging on and we haven't quite seen a proper recession yet. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, but I think these guys are certainly lining up. Uh, it's been uh, an interesting show this week. Thank you very much to both of you for being our first guests for uh, for 2021. Any, any sort of closing thoughts, uh, Aaron? I'll start with you. Um, no, I think I'm looking forward to 2021. I think it's going to be um, a good and busy year, I hope. Um, yeah, and I'd just like to thank you, Nick and Sulo, for having me. Likewise. Thanks, Nick and Aaron. Um, I, I think last year was a terribly quiet year for people in my profession, but I dare say uh, the, the three quarters, the back end of this year, I think it will return back to normal. I think there's a glut of businesses that should have gone into insolvency last year but have been given a lifeline. They may be zombie companies. They may not have any value. 
but I suspect there's a bit more activity coming our way. No worries. I noticed uh, we've just had a late entry for the uh, for, for for the lunch money uh, prize, and it's Brad Scully, who's uh, from from WA. Well done, Brad. You've, uh, you've you've won yourself a lunch money mug. All right, guys. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you to our viewers, and thank you to those of you who listen to our podcasts on Apple, Google, Spotify, and and Stitcher. Um, and uh, we look forward to doing it again next week. Thank you very much. Cheers.